This is a QAMR Berghofer Medical Research Institute podcast. Oh well, we know iron is an essential mineral for the body. Having levels too low isn't good for us and too high can be really dangerous, even deadly. And if you have ancestry from the UK or Ireland, you need to know about hemochromatosis. And my guest today believes iron levels may be an unknown contributor to several other health problems. Dr. David Fraser is the head of the Molecular Nutrition Research Group and he looks at iron regulation, absorption and its role in chronic diseases. Now, iron is fairly important as a mineral goes to our bodies, isn't it? Uh, yes, it is. Yes, yes, definitely. Iron plays a number of roles in the body, but probably the one that's most um, widely recognised is its role in um, the formation of haemoglobin. That's a red pigment that we have in our bloodstream and it's packaged up into red blood cells and we have obviously quite a lot of them, about 5 billion of them for, per mil of blood. The haemoglobin picks up oxygen in the lungs and delivers it to the cells. So it's um, very important in oxygen delivery and, and transport around the body. Um, but iron also plays a role within the cell in organelles called mitochondria, which are um, involved in energy production. So it's one of the reasons that if you become iron deficient, uh, you lose energy, you become lethargic um, and fatigued is because iron plays such an important role in this, this aspect of our lives. And that's getting low iron and then the other side is high iron levels. Yeah, it's kind of a double-edged sword, I guess, is that um, and the body has to play a, a real balancing act there where if you have too little iron, you become iron deficient and you become lethargic and you don't have enough iron for, for what you need. If you have too much iron as well, iron's um, an atom that is highly reactive, so it can form free radicals which can damage cells, DNA, and cause all sorts of complications as well. So the body's got to really tightly balance things so we've got enough for what we need without developing um, the problems of having too much iron. What's the best way to get iron? Uh, well, the best way of getting iron is in our diet. Um, so it's a nutrient. We absorb it from the food that we get, uh, the food that we eat. Most of the iron would come from sources such as uh, meat. That's probably the most common source that we have, but there's also vegetable sources as well. In a lot of cases, if someone's iron deficient, they'll be put on iron supplements instead, um, just because they're probably not getting enough from their diet. How quickly can you bring it up? It uh, depends how you do it. If you're taking iron supplement, and it obviously depends on how iron deficient you are. So if you're quite iron deficient, your body will have a drive to absorb more iron and it'll probably go up relatively quickly in the short term. Uh, but then it'll slow down because the body self-regulates how much iron you get from your diet. By far, the quickest way of getting iron in is to get an iron injection, of course, because it goes straight in and you've got all your iron there. If our diet's not right, how quickly can it go down? The body's actually pretty good at maintaining iron levels, so it does take a while to lose that iron. We don't actively excrete iron, so we lose it in things like uh, the sloughing off of skin cells and, and cells on the lining of the gut. The other way that we will lose a lot of it, but this is particularly important for, um, for young women, is uh, menstruation, a major source of iron loss for, for women. We're better at hanging on to other more precious minerals, really. I know when it comes to iron, we just don't see the value in it. <laughs> Unfortunately, it, it's it's really common. I can remember giving a talk in Manila at one stage to a whole heap of doctors over there on iron deficiency, and they said they would have patients come into them who would say, oh, I'm, look, I'm really feeling really bad, and they were worried about it. They'd find out they were iron deficient and go, oh, is that all? Unfortunately, it really affected their lifestyle. I can remember having a, um, a colleague of mine, I, I gave a talk on iron deficiency and she came up to me after and she said, oh, so it's really important, it's, it's, should I get myself tested? And I said, well, look, you'd be in a high risk group, so have yourself tested and see what happens. She got diagnosed, she was um, that iron deficient that they injected her pretty much immediately with iron and two to three weeks later she came up to me and she said, I've never felt this good. So she was someone who was 
overworked, thinking that she, she had kids she was looking after, she was working hard and just thinking she was just run down because of that, but she was iron deficient and that was the major thing that was happening to her. Hanging on to iron during pregnancy is pretty tough, but I believe you can stockpile it. Well, you, you can, yes. The problem with pregnancy is the, the placenta and it really sucked the iron out of a um, a pregnant woman. So the the fetus basically acts as a um, a Very successful parasite. It's a very, very successful parasite, definitely. And towards the the last trimester of pregnancy, it's almost impossible to get enough iron from the diet. So the the placenta is just sucking it out of you so fast that you just can't replace it. So really that's when you draw on your iron stores. And World Health Organization has suggested that in order to get through pregnancy without having to rely on really high iron supplements, you should have at least 500 milligrams of iron, of storage iron in the body. Unfortunately, most women, even in a place like Australia, just don't have those iron stores. And before you decide you're low because you're feeling tired, you should really consult a doctor. I should say that all the information here is general in nature and not personalised. You should always always seek your own medical advice about your personal circumstances. Definitely, most definitely. And one of the reasons is that, as I said before, iron deficiency will lead to fatigue, um, you're feeling run down. There's a very common disorder, hemochromatosis. Um, It affects about 1 in 180 Australians. Um, It's an iron overload disorder. It's genetic, but the symptoms, at least early on, are pretty much exactly the same as iron deficiency. Really? So fatigue is one of the, the most common symptoms of hemochromatosis. So you can imagine someone who says, oh, look, I'm a bit run down. I think I must be iron deficient, goes and takes an iron supplement. They could actually be making the situation worse. Let's talk about hemochromatosis. You found the gene around the 90s responsible for hemochromatosis, but it's been diagnosed a lot earlier than that. Oh, for sure. It's, uh, we've known about hemochromatosis for a long time. I guess one of the issues is what we didn't know is just how common it was. I think prior to the gene being discovered, we did know that it was it was common. Or people who were at least researching in that area and doctors, clinicians who knew about hemochromatosis uh, did realise how, how um, common it was. But discovering the gene that was affected really showed us just how common it was. So in Australia, you are talking about one in 180 people, as I mentioned before. It's a recessive disorder, so you need two copies of the mutant gene which means if you have one copy, you're a carrier. So while you may not have symptoms, you can still pass it on to your, your children. And the carrier frequency in Australia is about 1 in 8 to 1 in 10. So quite a lot of people are walking around with that mutation. What is the disease? Uh, the disease is iron loading. So basically what happens is your body thinks it's iron deficient. And so it absorbs more iron, it deposits in the tissues, and that extra iron causes all sorts of problems. The most common problems, as I said, at least to start off with a lethargy, the buildup of iron mainly occurs in the liver and what you'll get there is um, is liver disease. And so if it's untreated, it can lead to liver failure, liver cancer, all sorts of problems there. But diabetes is common in the disorder and also arthritis. You can get a bronzing of the skin. These are all in uh, when the disease has progressed quite, quite a long way. These days, it tends to be diagnosed a lot earlier, but not always. It's one of those things. I, I can remember talking to a... Um, the father of my, one of my daughter's friends, I, we were just talking after school when we were collecting the kids. He asked me what I did, and I said I told him what I did, and he goes, oh, have you ever heard of hemochromatosis? And I said, well, yes, I have heard of that one. Um, <laughs> Funnily and, enough. Oh, that's right. And, um, but it turns out he had hemochromatosis, but he was, in his thir- he was diagnosed early, but he was in his 30s when he had to have a hip, transplant, uh, hip replacement, and that was due to the arthritis caused by hemochromatosis, whereas had he been diagnosed earlier, 
that iron could have been removed and he wouldn't have had any of those problems. But if you don't know it's in your genetic history, the symptoms are pretty vague, so it is tricky to diagnose. It is, but it's getting better because these days, if you were to go to a doctor and say, I'm feeling run down, I'm feeling tired, one of the first things they'll do is they'll do a blood test for haemoglobin levels and normally they'll do iron status as well. Well, they ask you about your heritage because... Because that gene comes from a certain part of Europe traditionally, mm-hmm. doesn't it? Yes, it does, yes. So yes. if you're from the UK, yes, Ireland... definitely. Definitely. It is, it is far more prevalent in those, um, those areas. It, it's kind of got a, a Celtic origin and it's sort of the Vikings kind of spread it far and wide in their, their pillage and plunder sort of um, lifestyle that they had there. Multiculturalism just means that um, the genes can spread a bit more nowadays. But yes, it is um, mainly on that background. But like I said, what they'll do is they'll test you for your iron levels because like I said, the most common cause of, well, not maybe not the most common cause, but a very common cause of feeling tired and run down is going to be either iron deficiency or iron loading. So it's one of the first things I'll look at. And they'll pick that up then. If they see an um, abnormality where you've got high level of iron, they'll actually go and uh, screen you genetically to make sure to see whether you do have the mutation and from then on put you on some sort of treatment. And the, the common treatment these days, or well, the only treatment really these days, is what we call phlebotomy, which is basically removing blood. Hemoglobin contains a lot of the, um, the iron in your body. So by removing blood, we're re- actually removing iron. And then it forces your stores to release some That's into your right. bloodstream. Yes. yes. And now depending on when you're diagnosed and how iron loaded you are will depend on how often you need to be phlebotomized during that de-ironing phase. Um, so for example, initially you might have to have it maybe once every couple of weeks and then when you get it under control, less and less maybe a couple it. of times yes. a year? Yes. Like I said, it depends on how early it's going to be diagnosed. So if you were to diagnose someone very early, and I know I was doing a... Um, speaking to of, of schools last year and I, I mentioned hemochromatosis and uh, these were to high school kids and there was a, a kid in the audience who said oh yes I, I know about it. and I asked him how and it turns out he had it. He discovered that he had hemochromatosis because there was a family history of it. His uncle or someone like that got diagnosed mm-hmm. and they, so they screened everyone in the family and so he was found pretty much before he developed iron loading so really all he has to do is monitor his iron levels and he can get phlebotomized when they get to a too high level. He may never have to be de-ironed. Right. And so because of that, he'll probably never have any of the symptoms at all. Whereas in the, the person I was talking about before who had the, um, the hip replacement, he was diagnosed too late. And so the damage had been done. And that was the problem. So the earlier we can diagnose people with hemochromatosis, obviously, the better it is for them. Given that a lot of our population comes from that part of Europe, shouldn't it be part of a screening process that would be great yes um there have been studies that have suggested that that would actually be cost effective as well in a place like australia the treatment is just removing a bit of blood there's no medication Mm. very little side effects but big pharma looking at other solutions people don't like being jabbed with needles and i can completely relate to that so um, but also we have some people when they're diagnosed i remember talking to one patient at a when i was doing some talks at a patient group when he was first diagnosed, he was really iron loaded and he was he had to have a bag of blood drawn every two weeks for five years. And so that's five years of his life that he was completely exhausted for because he was constantly losing blood. And that's how much it, it took to de-iron that person. So now obviously he was so iron loaded that he had a lot of irreversible damage there done as well. So liver disease plus arthritis. And so when I was talking to him, he really still wasn't in a good way, but his iron levels were under control at that stage. If you are treated early, then you can live a completely normal life, no other yes, effects? As far as we're aware, um, the studies really haven't been done to prove that conclusively, but 
As far as we're aware, you can pretty much overcome just about every side effect of hemochromatosis if you can stop the iron loading in the first place. When um, you say that liver disease that's really common with undiagnosed mm-hmm. hemochromatosis, I think about uncles and cousins and people you know, in my family that apparently died of liver cancer mm-hmm. that didn't drink yes, and they yes. had a bit of an associated stigma. It's like, oh, he reckons he didn't that's drink. That's right, a closet drinker, a closet alcoholic, definitely. It's... um. They have found that when they someone has been diagnosed with hemochromatosis and they go back through, they, they screen relatives and they find a, a couple of other carriers. And then if they look back through the family history, there is a lot of times where they'll find a great-grandfather or a, an uncle who, who did die of something associated with the liver. It was probably suggested that they were closet drinkers and, um, in fact, they had iron loading. So, yeah. Well, clear their name. And That's it, exactly. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> iron has been linked to other conditions. I don't know whether there's any evidence to suggest that. Iron is involved in a, in a number of other conditions, definitely. Um, one of the most common ones that we know of is beta thalassemia. Uh, this is a condition where the body doesn't produce red blood cells properly. And so it responds to that by trying to produce more red blood cells. And the result of that is that because red blood cells contain a lot of iron, the body gets fooled into absorbing more iron than it needs. And so these patients with beta thalassemia do become iron loaded to varying degrees because it's a disease that has a wide spectrum um, going from something that's almost asymptomatic up to something that's it's quite a severe life-threatening disorder and this is also uh, it's a genetic disorder but it's also really common so if you go to places like cyprus you'll find that about 16 percent of the population has beta thalassemia so it's quite amazing how how highly prevalent it is is it common here uh, not so much. It's more unlike hemochromatosis, where it's more prevalent in the Caucasian population. Beta thalassemia is more prevalent in places like Southeast Asia, across the Middle East, and in Southern European countries. And it's dangerous. At its worst, it can be life-threatening for sure. And those people that have beta thalassemia major actually require blood transfusions probably every two weeks or so. And they're also on um, iron chelators to remove the iron that's delivered from that blood. Your group is also working on research about the link between iron and depression. Now, that's also very early days, isn't it? Uh, yes, that's, only, that's something we've only just been looking at recently. We're still trying to get funding to pursue that. The idea behind that is that obviously being iron deficient does make you feel run down. And there have been some studies that have shown that treating patients for their iron deficiency can actually increase their mental health as well. And so it stands to reason that it could work the other way, that People who we're not we're not saying that iron deficiency is the cause of depression, but potentially it may be something that influences someone and can potentially tip them over the um, the edge into depression. Uh, like I said, very early days. Um, we don't know whether there will be a link there, but it's something that we're exploring. It makes sense that somebody who's depressed is probably also not likely to be eating properly as well. Uh, that's true, and so it's likely that um, someone who is depressed is potentially lacking a whole range of nutrients. Um, but as I said, we're, we're going to start with looking at, at iron levels and see if we can find a relationship there. As I said, very early days, so not something that we can um, make any statements about at the moment. We talked about high iron and low iron, and once you've been diagnosed with low iron, then what's the best treatment? As far as iron deficiency goes, the most common treatment we use would be iron supplements. And I'm sure most pregnant women would be um, well experienced with them. Unfortunately, the ones we've got on the market at the moment are based on ferrous salts. Ferrous iron is quite reactive. And so there are a number of side effects associated with the supplements that are out there now, which 
cause around 50% of people to actually stop taking the supplements, uh, which is a bit of an issue, especially for pregnant women, because they've already got enough on their plate. You give them a tablet that's going to make them feel a bit sick. It's not a good thing. So one of the things we are working on is trying to develop better supplements. We've got a number of um, companies that we're working with where they've made a, a different form of iron, which by rights should reduce the symptoms. Can we talk about those complications? I know constipation is one of them. Uh, yeah, your gastrointestinal side effects are the main ones. There's also evidence that it may be able to affect what we call the microbiome, which is the bacteria that we have living in our, our intestine. Now, most people think of bacteria as being something that's bad, but we also have um, friendly bacteria living in there too. And people would be unfamiliar, I'm sure, with probiotics. Having a lot of iron all of a sudden go through the intestine, there is some evidence at least that it can affect the way those, um, those bacteria act and the type of bacteria that are there. And we really have no idea what effect that might have. We know that, um, for instance, the microbiome during infancy can affect things like neurological development, um, immune system development. It's one of those fields that we really don't know too much about yet. But if you added iron into that mix and potentially change things, there could be complications there or there could be um, implications there of that iron. But as I said, we really don't know what those effects might be at the moment. But we think that making something that is, um, um, has fewer side effects is obviously going to be a better thing. Let's talk about hepcidin then. That's at the centre of this, your research, yes. isn't it? Yes, hepcidin is a small peptide um, that's produced by the liver and it's, it's often termed the master regulator of iron homeostasis. So what it does is it stops iron being released from cells. So the more hepcidin you have in your bloodstream, the less iron gets released. And that includes from the intestine. So if you stop release from the intestine, you actually stop iron absorption. So we were one of the, we were, we were the first group back in 2003 to show that the reason that hemochromatosis patients load with iron is that the mutation that occurs in the HFE gene actually feeds back and decreases hepcidin expression. So that's why they load more. What we don't know is how HFE connects to, to hepcidin yet, and that's something that we're actively researching as well. Because if we can figure that out, we might be able to come up with some better treatments. Let's talk about iron and getting it in the natural way. Who needs it? How do we get it? And what's the best way? Well, the people who, may, who need most of the iron are premenopausal women. They have iron, higher iron requirements than men and postmenopausal women. The current recommended daily intakes for men are generally met by the diet. Men don't have to be concerned about iron deficiency all that much. It's premenopausal women that are, is the most at risk group of iron deficiency. The current recommended daily allowance is um, 18 milligrams whereas most women would probably only take in about 12 milligrams a day, which means that they're lacking iron. As I said before, in order to get through a successful pregnancy, the World Health Organization suggests that women should have about half a gram of iron, a storage iron. Now, when we talk about serum ferritin levels, that's a, a level of about 60 to 70 as far as serum ferritin goes, whereas most women in Australia would be far less than that. Really, I think premenopausal women should be looking at getting their iron levels tests, especially if they're looking at becoming pregnant, because that way they can make sure their iron levels are okay. Now, there are a number of ways you can get extra iron in. The most um, common way is to take an iron supplement. Uh, that The high-level iron supplements are the ones that cause most of the side effects, but it is possible to get um, lower-level ones, 10 to 20 milligrams. They're not going to be much good if you're actually iron deficient. You do need those high levels. But if you're just trying to maintain your iron levels, and taking something like that can help. If you are severely iron deficient these days, they tend to inject you with iron instead. How do you get it in your food? 
Uh, uh, well, it's meat that's the main, it's going to be one of the main sources of iron, or readily absorbable iron anyway. It's commonly thought that um, meat iron is, is more bioavailable, so easier to absorb than iron from vegetable sources, but it's possible to get iron from quite a number of things. And, and that's why I guess that um, vegetarians and vegans are more at risk than someone who's a, an omnivore. Now, that doesn't mean that a vegetarian or, or vegan diet can't be healthy. It just means you've got to be much more careful about what you eat to make sure that you do get enough iron in. It's fascinating research and we wish you the best of luck in the future. And if you'd like to keep up to date about Dr. David Fraser and his work and all our latest research at QIMR Burkhofer, just go to qimrburkhofer.edu.au. Thank you, David. Okay, thank you very much.